This morning we will be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 9 through 11. If you want to find that in your Bible, that's what we'll be talking about this morning. We're going to be talking about the transforming grace of God. I kind of struggled to decide on a title for the message this morning based on the passages we'll look at because I wanted to emphasize Christ, I wanted to emphasize the resurrection, but here Paul emphasizes the grace of God. So that's what I chose to put into the, the title, the transforming grace of God. One of the most moving stories from the history of Christianity that I've can remember learning about was the story of John Newton. Some of you know that name right away, but for those that don't, I'll keep you in suspense for a minute. Who this guy? How do you know this guy? Um, you know at least one thing about John Newton, even if you never heard that name before, and I'll tell you when I, in a minute. John Newton lived during the 18th century, born in London, grew up in England, and he was a rough guy. He was a rough and tough, rebellious teen and young adult, Joined the British Royal Navy, and I'm guessing from what I've read, those guys in the Navy wish I never would have seen that guy. <laughs> he was always being disciplined. He finally quit. I think he went AWOL from there. And just a rough life. Hateful, spiteful, just full of anger, full of hate. And he found a job that seems to fit that kind of a resume. He he got a job on a slave trading ship in his early 20s, working on a slave trading ship. Eventually, later in his life, he became a captain of a slave ship in the transatlantic slave trade of the time. Now, if I stop right there and I just left you with that, then you're, you would go away from that thinking, that guy's a villain. <laughs> that guy is not a hero. That guy is, man, that's what the world does to people. That's what Satan does to people. Just takes the heart, turns it hard, makes a hateful, spiteful person. But John Newton, his mother was a Christian apparently, and she would always encourage him to read scripture and put verses in front of him and talk about Jesus to him. And one time he was out at sea, and they hit a storm. And he kind of had one of those testimonies where he's on that ship, and they think it's going down. And he prays out to God, God, if you save me, I'm yours. <laughs> I'll follow you. And he described that as a bit of his conversion, that he, he, he at least exercised some faith in God. He, you know, it's a little confusing sometimes you read a testimony. Did he really trust Christ on that boat that day? I'm not sure. But he was certainly more sensitive to God from that time forward. And he talked about it as where he was converted. But later, it's clear that he did trust Christ for certain. And that began to transform his life. He came to hate the slave trade. He looked back on what he did and just how bad that was. He knew that, you know, that was just so hurtful for all those people. And he left that behind. He became a minister in the church of that time there in England. He became a minister. Preach his heart out, write songs, write hymns. Later, he supported uh, William Wilberforce, who was a stalwart abolitionist of that time and helped England to turn away from the slave trade and outlaw it. They were one of the first countries involved that did that. 
And so this John Newton guy, he had an influence in helping that come about. The reason that I say you know at least something about John Newton is he wrote a very well-known and famous hymn. Who knows what it is? Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace. We didn't sing it today. I almost put a request in for it, but that's all right. We're going to talk about Fanny Crosby too. We did sing some of hers this morning. But John Newton, he wrote Amazing Grace. When you read the lyrics of Amazing Grace, I'm giving you the backstory behind those lyrics. How he saw God work in his life. Change him. You know, you, you think of some of the lyrics of Amazing Grace. Um, I once was blind, but now I see. Just he went on in his hard-hearted ignorance in life. Became what he became. He was ignorant of the Lord, blind to it until he saw. And then that put everything else in life in the right perspective. But it talks about uh, that grace that saved a wretch like me. I just gave you the story why he called himself a wretch in that song. A wretch like me. See, John Newton knew about the transforming grace of God. He experienced it. It rescued him from Satan, from the world, from sin, from himself, from his own heart, from the evil that was in him. And it transformed him from the inside out. The grace of God made John Newton what he became as a tireless minister for the Lord who wrote a song that we sing now over 200 years later and are still captivated by its words because all of us can relate to that song to some degree. All of us can relate to some degree. Again, that's what Christ can do in a life, to transform a heart. That's what his grace accomplishes. And there is no greater example of the transforming grace of God outside of the Apostle Paul, who we are looking at this morning in our passage, where we take this few pieces of Scripture here, where Paul gives a little glimpse of his testimony once again, in 1 Corinthians 15, 9 through 11. And let's read that passage now as Paul talks about the grace of God that transformed him from the inside out. He says, For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. We'll remind you that what Paul is doing in this passage is proving beyond all shadow of doubt that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And he's doing that because some of the Corinthians are doubting the, the teaching of resurrection from the dead. And he is saying again, if you don't believe in the resurrection from the dead, then how can you believe Jesus rose from the dead? And therefore, what's the gospel? What are we talking about? What are we doing here? Is basically what he's saying here. And so he's defending the resurrection of Christ so that he can defend the very idea of resurrection from the dead that awaits every soul. And in, he inserts this in here because he's talking about his interaction with the resurrected Lord. He was the last person to ever see Jesus Christ 
in, re- in bodily resurrected form on this earth. Paul was the last one to ever see that. And he saw it a few times, actually, in his ministry. But he was the last one to ever see that. And he's basically saying, the reason that God let me see him alive was because of his grace. God's grace at work in Paul's life. That's what he's talking about here. And so he goes into this a little bit deeper about how grace transformed him. And we'll just make this point as we look at verse 9 together, that the resurrected Christ changed Paul from persecutor to apostle. Even that is mind-boggling. And we'll continue to revisit this idea, but, but the apostle Paul was leading the persecution of those who said they followed Christ. He was leading that. He was at the very front of that, charging ahead, leading the way, probably inspiring others to persecute these people. And then something happened to him. Jesus Christ happened to him. The grace of God seized his heart. And then he became the foremost champion of Jesus Christ. He led the way in that charge, inspired others to follow Christ and put their lives on the line to serve the risen Lord. So just the marvelous transformation of the Apostle Paul. God's grace does that in people's lives. And Paul, again, brings that out here to the Corinthians. Again, in verse 9, he says, For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. We recognize right away Paul considered himself to be the most undeserving apostle. He considered himself to be the most undeserving apostle, calling himself again the least of the apostles. And the word for least there has the idea of like smallest or tiniest, but in the context of which he's talking, he's basically saying, hey, if you're comparing apostles, just go ahead and put me at the bottom. What he's showing here is his humility (laughs) before the Lord. He recognizes like, you know, he recognizes all those apostles of that time, they had their failures. You remember Peter denied the Lord three times, right? All of them fled from him when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. They all had their failures, their shortcomings, their problems. But Paul looked back and said, yeah, but you know what? They weren't leading the persecution. That was me. They may have got scared in the moment and drifted away, but I was, cha- I was one of the ones chasing them, you know? And he kind of looks at it that way. That's, his, that's the scale he's using. He's not saying that he's uh, less gifted less important to God or anything like that. He's just saying, hey, if you're going to compare failures, I win. <laughs> that's what he's basically saying. He said, I, I that's where he says, I, I, I deserve at least. None of us deserve the grace of God, right? Let's just define what is grace. What is grace? One very short definition that's used a lot of times is what's called unmerited favor, Unmerited favor. Unmerited means you can't work for it, can't earn it, don't deserve it. Favor means God's for you. You can never do anything to make God be more for you, to love you more, to want you saved more. It's totally undeserved. It's simply born out of his infinite love for humanity. The same love that sent Jesus to the cross is always reaching out to you in God's grace, wanting you to come to Jesus Christ. Grace. It's God wanting to bless us, give us everything, and through Jesus Christ, he paid for it through the blood of his own son. 
That's the idea of grace. That's what seized Paul's heart and mind when he came to see the risen Lord. And he recognized where he came from. He recognized he didn't deserve it. And in in one sense, because his past was so dark, it made God's grace seem all the more powerful for people who knew him. He says basically here he's not worthy to be called an apostle. One of the things he's doing here is he does have to defend that he is an apostle of the Lord. That was something being doubted by the Corinthians. The Corinthians were sectarian. They were dividing into groups. We like this guy better. We like that guy better. We're going to do what he says. And they divide off into factions and getting into fights and And it sounds like the kind of church you want to be part of, right? (laughs) Too many stories of churches like that, right? It was going on in Corinth. Some of them were dismissing and diminishing Paul. Like, oh, who's that guy? Who's that guy? And he said, well, I'm the guy that came to you with the gospel. I'm the guy that started your church. I'm the guy the Lord chose. I don't deserve it, but he did it. So maybe listen to what God's doing. It's not about Paul, it's about the risen Lord. What's the risen Lord doing today? But he understands again, he's not worthy. He wasn't worthy of that role. He recognizes that. He uses a word there in verse 9, the word for worthy. It's the same word that John the Baptist used to describe himself. Matthew 3.11, and we'll see, we'll head up on the screen, I think, here as well. If you want to, I'll read this passage to you. Matthew 3.11 This is what John the Baptist said in his ministry. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. That phrase, you know, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. You know, like John's like, you know, I'm not even worth carrying his shoes around for him. You know, what is that? Is that a a self-defeating attitude? No, 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 no. That's a humble heart simply recognizing who God is and who I am. (laughs) And this gulf is insurmountable between the awesome and righteousness of God and just me as a person. That's what John the Baptist recognized. I am a lowly, sinful person. He is the sinless son of God. I I don't even deserve the honor of carrying his shoes for him. I don't even deserve that. And yet, John the Baptist was chosen. Jesus said, there's no greater prophet than John the Baptist. High accolades. But he had a humble attitude. He saw himself the way God saw him. He recognized who he was before the Lord. He recognized his desperate need of salvation. Same with the Apostle Paul. Paul probably would have put himself at the same level. Like, I don't even, I don't even deserve to carry his shoes. And he's made me an apostle. And he sent me out to the world. Again, the virtue here is humility. We see Paul's humility in verse 9. It's a virtue we all need. It must characterize our lives and our hearts. I would say humility is a posture of the heart. Pride is a posture of the heart. Pride is an attitude of self-centered self-esteem that leads one to live independently of God in a spirit of arrogance and haughtiness with hardness of heart. Humility is ultimately an attitude of truthful recognition of oneself before the Lord. Humility sees my need for God, keeps my heart soft, and keeps me open to God, and frees me to serve others. 
That's what we see with the Apostle Paul. Again, another way to summarize verse 9 is, I understand it's not about me. I'm not here to make it about me. But this is God's work in my life, and you can't deny it. Because if you deny God's work in my life, you deny God. And I can't stand for that. (laughs) That's Paul's heart here, talking about himself and defending the grace of God in his life. We see here that Paul persecuted the church of God. That's our next point here. Paul had viciously persecuted followers of Christ. He had viciously persecuted them. I'm going to take you through a sequence of scriptures just again to give you the background of this man, to understand what was going on in his heart and his life before he trusted Christ as his Savior. I'll first show you Acts chapter 8, verse 3. Here it was said of Paul, and his name is also Saul, just so you know. Chapter 8, verse 3, As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house, and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. If that's the only verse you ever had about Saul of Tarsus, you say, that guy's a villain. Whoa, what happened to that guy? But that wasn't the end of his story. Acts chapter 9, 1 and 2, a little bit later. Saul's attitude was still hard-hearted and hateful toward the followers of Christ. Acts 9, 1 and 2. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. The one thing we know about the Apostle Paul, even in his unsaved state, as a legalistic Pharisee, he was zealous. He was like a dog on meat with this stuff. You know, he thought people were blaspheming his God by following this Jesus of Nazareth, and he was going to make sure they went down for it. Again, if we're being honest, I mean, we can look at his testimony and be like, man, what makes a man so hardened that he's breathing threats and murder against the people who are just saying, let's love each other and worship this guy named Jesus? I mean, really, what threat do they hold Right? Same today. What threat do Christians really hold to the world? But why, why, where's the hate come from? It comes from Satan and a sinful heart. That's where it comes from. And it's always going to be there as long as this world's in the sway of the wicked one. And until Jesus Christ reigns himself. But you see that. You see that testimony of Saul and what was going on with him, breathing threats and murder. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I... I don't really I can't even really picture anybody who's ever really threatened me seriously. Some of you probably have. I got a feeling brother Doug's heard some maybe some threatening and murders against him as a police officer. I don't know that for sure. But I'd be the one person I might guess has heard some stuff like this. I don't know that everybody's come up to me and breathed threats and murders against me. You know, I'd probably be like double checking the door locks and stuff like that if I, you know, I just think about facing a guy like him, where he was at, what he was doing. But again, you see his zeal And the links he was willing to go, he's going to travel. He's going to arrest people. He wants them to die. I'm going to show you another passage, Acts chapter 26, 9 through 11. Later, Paul recounts his testimony. He includes uh, some of these details and gives a little bit different uh, aspect to them. 
Acts chapter 26, 9 through 11, it says, Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I just, that phrase even makes me think, like, that's a summary statement of anybody who's an unbeliever, basically. Whether you know it or not, that's kind of where your life's at. You're just doing things contrary to the name of Christ. That name alone will stir your heart. Verse 10, this I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priest. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. It's a little different take on the story there where he says he voted for people to die. We see that in the book of Acts with Stephen. It says he was consenting unto his death. But there seems like there was more people that he was able to say, stone him, stone him. We don't know. He may have been one of the guys that threw some of those stones. He says he made people blaspheme. You hear sometimes about this kind of stuff with the martyrs and the persecuted church where a government or some entity will put them through such torturous things just so they'll deny Jesus Christ. And you know people have, have said things just to make the pain stopped. And some of them didn't and, went and did die. That's happened through the history of the church. Paul was one of those guys made people blaspheme Jesus Christ through some kind of pain or torture here. Wow, right? He says he was exceedingly enraged against them. That's a really honest statement, isn't it, from the Apostle Paul? He was exceedingly enraged. And that just gives you a picture of really what's going on in the heart of somebody who doesn't know Christ when they get onto something. I mean, there's all this emotion. There's anger and there's fear and there's doubt. And it'll all get turned against somebody else. And it'll come out viciously at times, like it did with Saul of Tarsus. It was his own heart that was ultimately the problem. And what he believed, he believed lies. And then he acted on those lies. And he harmed others willfully, exceedingly enraged. That's where his heart was before he knew Christ. Living in rage. Really rage against God, ultimately. Because of where Paul came from and where his heart was before he knew Christ, he referred to himself as the chief of sinners. That's a quite an interesting self-designated title, is it not? Chief of sinners. You know. 1 Timothy 1.15 is where he says that. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Of whom I am chief. He recognized what he had been. He recognized what he did. And he recognized that what he became was all because the grace of God. Paul was not so hideous that the grace of God couldn't touch him where he was. That Jesus, he was not so unsavable that Jesus Christ could not save him. It's just an amazing story. It makes me think of a lyric from the song. We actually sang it in Sunday school this morning. It was from Fanny Crosby. And the song is called To God Be the Glory. And one of the things that she captures in that song, and I wonder if she wasn't talking about Paul when she wrote the lyric. 
because the lyric goes, the vilest offender who truly believes. What? That moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. The vilest offender. Apostle Paul says, as me, I'm chief of sinners. I can take that title. I owned that title. That was who he was before Christ. That was who he is. That's, that's really what every person is heading toward without Christ. But interesting enough, it was almost for that very reason that Jesus picked him in the first place. Because he was such a vile offender. He was so hard-hearted that God in his grace wanted to make him an example of grace for the whole world to remember for millennia to come. He picked one of the most vile people to make an awesome example of his grace. The Lord specifically chose Paul as the apostle of grace. You know, you just see that God's hand was in all this. You know, I just think looking back at Saul of Tarsus and and growing up and becoming that hard-hearted Pharisee and wanting to attack, and there there was God there the whole time watching him, knowing what was going on in the heart. And knowing that one day Jesus Christ is going to show up on the road to Damascus and appear to this guy. And nothing's ever going to be the same. But just what a story. The Lord specifically chose Paul as the apostle of grace. He picked the threatening, murderous man. And Jesus Christ, of course, appeared to him on that road to Damascus, brighter than the noonday sun. And from that time on, Paul knew the truth and believed Jesus Christ for who he was. The vilest offender truly believed. And then he was sent out with the same message of grace. Nobody knew grace better than Paul. (laughs) He experienced it firsthand in an awesome, miraculous way. Going from self-designated, in a sense, chief of sinners, to now God-designated apostle of grace to the whole world. That's quite a 180. On the day... On that road, the unbeliever became a believer. The legalist experienced love. The persecutor became a proclaimer. The champion of the law became a champion of the grace of God. That's what happened to the Apostle Paul. Acts chapter 26, 16 through 18 captures Paul's mission and part of his message for the world that Jesus sent him into after his salvation. Jesus said to him, But rise and stand on your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Those very things that Jesus says, you go and do, that's what happened to him that day. He was turned from darkness to light. He turned from Satan to God. He received forgiveness of sins when Jesus appeared to him and he believed upon him. The grace of God radically transformed Paul. And now he would be the most visible and exemplary testimony of that the world would ever know. What the grace of God can do. And it just makes me think, you know, again, we all have a story. 
Every one of you, if you sat down and really thought about your life before Christ and the difference he's made and how the grace of God has done things in your life, you would recognize the hand of God with you. You would see what grace does. His, the most powerful work that grace does is to change the human heart. And so I ask again, I ask this question, what has God been doing in your life? What has he done in your life? From what did God's grace rescue you? Sometimes you think, what would have happened had I not turned to Christ? What would have happened if I had not experienced the grace of God? And that's, that's scary. <laughs> that's scary stuff to think where you go in life without Jesus Christ, what you might become. And I think of Paul, too, of this, this crossroads there on the road to Damascus in a sense of like, he's going zealous, he's going 110% against the followers of Jesus, wanting them to die, wanting them to be in prison, wanting to shut the whole thing down, finding some success in that, pushing on, pushing harder, fighting harder for it. And when Jesus appears to him, there's sort of a crossroads there. He recognizes now he's wrong. And he's been oh so wrong. And you think of like, you know, the crushing effect of defeat. You know, just the, the realization in that moment of time that the things I've done are oh so wrong. I mean, it's just hard to even imagine that moment. The kind of pain, the kind of crushing weight that that could be on a human heart. Paul saw the risen Lord, and, and, he, and he had a choice to make. He could either accept the grace that was being offered him through Jesus Christ in that moment and accept God's forgiveness, or he could have resisted that grace even further. He could have not experienced that forgiveness. He could have let that crushing weight of being wrong, so dreadfully wrong, and turn him into a bitter shell of what God intended him to be. That's how a lot of people's past affects them. They, they can't really receive the forgiveness that God gives. They don't really understand how the grace of God deals with that. And what do they become? They can become a bitter shell. Hard-hearted, in pain, like a wounded animal at times. I think of the testimony of Fanny Crosby, another great hymn writer of the church. She lived during the 1800s. She wrote such songs as uh, To God Be the Glory and Blessed Assurance, I think is the one we sang in Sunday school earlier. Fanny Crosby, as a little girl, as an infant, about six weeks old, got an eye infection. Minor eye inflammation. But the doctors in those days, you know, had some different ideas, right, on how to treat things. And they put some kind of a poultice in her eye, made her go blind, permanently blind. It's kind of, look, you, I just think even of that. If, if that was my story, if the doctor just would have left me alone, I could see today. You think of that as your testimony, the kind of tragedy. Somebody trying to help you and it made it way worse than it ever was going to be. That was her testimony. So she grows up blind. She was a Christian. She knew the Lord. But again, you know, going up, that's, that's a hardship, right? When she was married, 
she, she became pregnant, had her one and only child, and that baby died in infancy. Another tragedy, right? Another tragedy. But when you, when you look at what she wrote in her songs, when you look at her focus on God, the realization of his blessed assurance, wanting to glorify him, to God be the glory, those are the words she wrote. We sing them today, 200 years later. How do you be blind for your life, lose your one and only child in infancy, have such, such grand disappointments, and to still say, to God be the glory. The grace of God at work in your heart. Jesus Christ at work in your heart. The realization that Jesus indeed did rise from the dead. He's real. He's got salvation. You put your faith in him. And he can lift all those burdens away by his grace. We go on to verse 10 and Paul says, But by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. And we'll just make this point here in the last couple of verses. The resurrected Christ changed Paul into a grace-filled servant. He didn't just get thrown in a role, get a title and a new job description from persecutor to apostle. He actually, his whole heart was, was radically transformed. Again, from the inside out. First of all, Paul's identity came by God's grace. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. So you can look back on all that stuff he did, all the the garbage he was involved with, the rage that he felt against those people, the things he did about that rage. And he can say, but I'm free of that because the grace of God, I am what I am. The grace of God, that's what moves me forward. Don't make any mistake. Paul didn't go through life motivated by guilt. Because you show me a Christian motivated by guilt, I will show you a defeated Christian. He was filled with grace. He was motivated by the love of God. He knew God as his father. His whole identity had changed. He was no longer hard-hearted Pharisee. He was child of God, son of the Most High. He recognized God's grace had moved him into a whole new identity, made him a whole new creation in Christ. And he was at rest in his identity in Jesus Christ. The one who had lived this horrible past was set free and filled with grace because he no longer defined himself by what he had done, but what Christ had done. Romans 8, 14 through 17 is a passage that captures what God makes every believer by his grace. Romans 8, 14 through 17. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Sons of God. God is our Father. 
The moment we trust Christ, we're forever identified into Jesus Christ. That's how God always sees us. That's how God always deals with us. We're holy in Christ. We're set free in Christ. We're his sons and daughters in Christ. Jesus Christ makes all that possible. The grace of God makes all that possible. So it doesn't matter what people think about us. It doesn't matter how people want to define us. It only matters that we believe what our Father in Heaven says about us. And it doesn't matter who you were before that. It only matters what He has said and what Jesus Christ has done. His identity came by God's grace. And I'll just add this point. I was thinking about it in the song we sang about the great I am. Right? That's one of the titles of God. He's the self-sufficient, self-existent Jehovah God. I am that I am. And it just speaks of his awesomeness and, and just who he is as God. And I just think of what Paul says. And I am what I am by the grace of God. In other words, I am what I am because he is the great I am. Because he has made it so. It's not me. I can't do it. I can't change my identity. I can't change my heart. And I'll wrestle with that my whole life unless I let Jesus Christ change it and let him have the victory in me, as the Apostle Paul did so many years ago. His identity came by God's grace. And he goes on in verse 10 and he says, uh, God's grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Here we see Paul's ministry was empowered Paul's ministry was powered by God's grace. It wasn't a one-time deal. I got grace when I'm saved. Now I'm trudging through life on my own. It's not that. No, it's every day grace wins in your heart. You're motivated by grace every day. God's grace does its work every day. And because the people in Corinth were so apt in comparing everybody and comparing the apostles and, and kind of metering out who they thought was best and worst and all this kind of stuff, Paul, Paul says, well, and, I'll, and, I'll, and in his humility, he says it. He says, I labored more abundantly than they all. Who's the all there? Well, he's been talking about Cephas and James and the 12 apostles and the other apostles. And you kind of say, well, who is Paul to say he did more than they did? I don't know. By the grace of God, he did that. It wasn't him. He says, wasn't I? It's the grace of God with me. God's grace molded him to give more, go further, Share with more people of the other apostles. And you can, that, that's borne out by Scripture. This is just being factual here. He's just, and he's not, it's not about boasting in himself because in this, this place in, the, in 2 Corinthians, which we read earlier, he boasted in infirmities. He boasted in weakness. What he's doing here is glorifying God because God's grace was so at work in his life that he did the things he did. Now, all those apostles were transformed. Last week, we went through the, the resurrection appearances of Christ, and we talked about Thomas a little bit, and Peter, or Cephas, a little bit, and some of the women, too, like Mary Magdalene, and the difference it made in all of their lives, the difference that Jesus Christ made after his resurrection. They all were filled with a boldness, with, an, with a more of an urgency, with a heart to minister, and you see the fruit of that if you read through the book of Acts. One day, they're cowering in a room. The next day, they're willing to go to the temple and tell everybody what Jesus Christ has done. You can't do that on your own. 
That's a heart change that only God can do. And he did it in every one of those lives. So they are all majorly transformed. But Paul says, but I, I labored more abundantly than they did. And I think the apostles would agree. Yeah, yeah, he, he, he has traveled more. He's talked to more people. And you see that in his ministry. You read the book of Acts. You read Paul's letters. He was all over the place. Three missionary journeys that we're aware of, plus a fourth journey to Rome in which he was shipwrecked. We're talking about that in Sunday school. He just kept going. Why? Why did he keep going? What, what, what was at work in his heart? It's the grace of God. The grace of God gripped his heart. Paul is an example of what, how the, what, what the grace of God looks like when it is unleashed in your heart and life. It's not about you doing to try to make God happy and i got to get the checklist. It's none of that. It's, man, I so love God. God, who's next to share with? What can I do next, Lord? I want, to, I want people to know about your grace. That's what Paul experienced, and that's what he took to the world. In our scripture reading this morning, we read from 2 Corinthians 11. And in, I chose that passage because Paul talks about something else he did more abundantly, and it was suffering. And he talked about how he received 39 stripes five times. At least when he wrote 2 Corinthians, it was at five. I don't know if he got more or not. He was stoned. He said he was in deaths often. Shipwrecked three times. Guess what? That doesn't count the one in Acts. So at least four times he was shipwrecked. I'm one shipwreck for me, and I'm walking, guys. I'm telling you. <laughs> one, and I'm out. I'm walking the rest of the way. I'll, I'll take the camel or something. You know what? I, I'm not taking the ship anymore. My goodness. But four times. And you know, you just read the book of Acts like we were talking about in Sunday school. Acts chapter 27. Paul's telling them what's going to happen. They're not listening. They get shipwrecked. They all swim to the island of Malta. And uh, they, they, they get up. They're making a fire. Everything. Life goes on. And he's just getting out of this shipwreck and this trauma. You know what he's looking for? He's looking for the next person. Hey, you know, he go, he starts, starts a ministry right there on the island of Malta. You know, God shipwrecks him on Malta. And he spreads the gospel there. He shares with people. The grace of God was working in him. That's what he's talking about when he says he labored more abundantly than the all. Because God's grace was sufficient. It was enough for him. He didn't need praise and accolades and wealth or fame or the next great iPhone or whatever. No picking on anybody. But you know what? Grace was enough. That's what he lived for. He lived for Jesus Christ. And that's why his ministry was as successful as it was because he was yielded to the Spirit. God's grace filled his heart. God's grace moved him forward. God's grace gave him the passion to see the next person saved, the next town reached. Galatians 4.9 captures the heart of Paul and his ministry. My little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. Anybody here ever labored in birth? <laughs> I know a few have. Labored in birth. Why did, why did they choose that illustration? What's so hard about that, right? <laughs> most, one of the most painful experiences humanly possible labor pains and so forth. He says, I labor in birth again. I will go through all this again if it means God will win your heart and Christ will be formed in you. I'm willing to take the, the hits. I'm willing to take the shipwrecks if God's grace is going to get that next person's heart. This, and I'll, and I'll, I'll give this phrase, some have called the apostle 
the apostle of the heart set free. And that is so true because the grace of God set his heart free and you've never seen one more passionate about what Jesus Christ can do in your life than the apostle Paul. Michael Horton wrote about Martin Luther, wrote this story. Someone once confronted Martin Luther upon the reformer's rediscovery of the biblical doctrine of justification with the remark, if this is true, a person could simply live as he pleased. You, you ever talked about God's grace and you hear that? Well, grace just is a license to sin. If you've got God's grace, just do whatever you want to do. You know how Luther answered? Indeed, but what pleases you? The person who has been justified by God's grace has a new, higher, and nobler motivation for holiness than a shallow, hypocritical self-righteousness or fear that seems to motivate so many religious people today. It's been ever since the Reformers, people have been wrestling with grace. What, you mean that easy believism? Absolutely. You want it to be hard? Is it supposed to be hard? No, Jesus did the work. Trust him and be saved. Grace, let the grace of God fill your heart. Your, what pleases you will change. That's what God does. Verse 11, Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Paul's testimony of the resurrection was affirmed by all the apostles. This kind of steps beyond his testimony of grace for a moment, but he simply comes back to what he's been talking about. He's, it's like saying, look what, I am living proof that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That's what Paul's saying here. I am living proof because you, you know what I was without him. And Paul's testimony from persecutor to apostle, there's no other way to account for it if Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead. There's no other force on the planet that would motivate that kind of change. It is one of the most, to me, it's one of the greatest proofs of the historicity and authenticity of the Christian faith that Jesus rose from the dead because I have no other explanation for the apostle Paul because you don't go from a position he had to what he became and take all the beating, all the hits, all the suffering unless what you were preaching was real and true and you really saw that stuff. There's no other way to account for it outside of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's kind of the point he's bringing home to the Corinthians. They, some of them liked Peter, some of them liked Paul, some of them liked others, and he's saying, but we all preach that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. So you have no reason to doubt the resurrection from the dead. That's not what verse 11 is saying there. Well, we'll end with this thought. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, this is how Paul ends this chapter, by the way, that we're going through. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Everything we've said this morning, those verses we read this morning about God's grace at work in Paul, it's exactly what God wants to do in your heart today. And he can do it. He can do it. His grace will do it. The resurrected Christ wants to work in our lives the same way as Paul. He wants to fill our heart with his grace so that we live in complete surrender to him every day. And what I just read in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, that will be true when your heart is stayed on Christ and the grace of God is unleashed in your life. You will labor abundantly for the Lord. You will want 
to reach that next person. You will want to serve the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your grace. Lord, we can't even really describe it. Words don't do justice to just how much you've done for us. How you as infinite holy God have reached down to us in our unworth and undeserving sinfulness and not only saved us, but but empower us for every day of the life you call us to. Lord, it's unimaginable, unimaginable power that works in us if we simply surrender to you and live by faith. We pray that your grace would just be working in our hearts this week, Father, as we follow you, follow the Spirit, and be about your work. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.